We are in a series called Big Simon, and the reason that we're doing this series is because it connects directly to what we why we even launched this church five years ago, and that's because more than half of the city of Wichita identifies as no religious affiliation. And we've said from the beginning of this series that when Jesus called his first four followers to follow him, he said, I've got something big in store for you, and if you will follow me, I'm going to make you into something that you're not. And that something is what uh, we and a group of us embraced over five years ago. Jesus said, I've got something big for you, a big assignment. I'm going to make you what he termed fishers of men. And we've said that at the beginning they had no idea what that meant. And that's not why they followed him. They followed him because he had done this extraordinary miracle that they witnessed. And like them, initially, we don't follow Jesus because he's going to make us fishers of men. We follow because we think that somehow Jesus is going to make our life better and make us better at life. And we like that. We want that. And so we, we follow him because of the promise to be able to go to heaven and avoid hell. We follow him because he bailed us out of trouble. Uh, we follow him because we feel somehow through him God has forgiven us or he helped our marriage or helped us get out of debt or all that kind of stuff that happens when you follow Jesus and your life transforms over time. But he told them up front, he says to them and he says to us, listen, I'm going to do all that stuff for you. I'm going to help you in you know, heaven when you die, and new earth, and all these wonderful things. But, but this is both about you and bigger than you. And you need to understand that. I have an assignment for you. I'm going to make you men and women who are fishers of men and women. And I'm going to enable and equip you to tell other people what I've done for you so that I can do it for them. And that makes us nervous because it's hard to talk to other people about Jesus, isn't it? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's just, it's hard. For others of you, this might be new information. Because you thought, listen, you know, I, I kind of was raised, or I just believed that faith was between me and God. Or that I'm just supposed to keep my religion private. But Jesus made it very clear. He said, listen, I'm going to make you something that affects the outside world. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And sure enough, that's exactly what they became. They went out and they told other people about who Jesus was and what he had done and what had happened. Who told other people, who told other people. And then 2,000 years later, here we are because some bodies talked about it. And we said the reason that we have to talk about the details concerning Jesus and our faith is because our message and the message of Jesus is not intuitive. Our belief system isn't simply based on a theology or a doctrine or a general concept about God. Christianity isn't simply some uh, elevated sense of morality and ethics. Christianity is about something that happened in history. And the only way to know something that happened in history is for someone to tell you. It has to be person to person communicated that way. We have, that's why we have to talk about it. Now, next week, we're going to really focus on the fear factor, the fear that I talked about when it comes to sharing our faith and how to deal with that. But just to touch on it today, one of the reasons that we, reasons to talk about our faith and just create stress and create fear is because for many of you, your tendency is to think that this is somehow a solo mission. You know, this is, a, I, I got to go out, out on my own and get this done. I, you know, I got to go over to my neighbor's house and, you know, go like, you know, hey, isn't the sunset beautiful? And, you know, 
when God created the sunset, speaking of God and somehow transitioning to Jesus and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and it's just like we fumble sometimes. And sometimes we're so uncomfortable talking about Jesus, we make the other person uncomfortable as we're talking to them. And they make the message get confused and suddenly we're talking about Genesis and creation and Jesus and there are two different Josephs and three different Johns and there's Revelation and a bunch of horses and there's an Antichrist with ten, hor ten horns and seven heads. So do you want to become a Christian? Like, no, I don't know what, what you're talking about. We just get confused. Like, no, follow him. We just get so freaked out about it. This is why I love today's passage that we're going to talk about today, because this truth, it will help you so much. And it's what I've given my life to. It's a huge part of why we launched New Life. The fishing was never intended to be a solo expedition. It was never, intend, never intended to be something we just go out and we do on our own and try to compel people to believe what we believe. Now, at times, that's part of it, but that's not the primary way it works. We are an interdependent body. We are an interdependent body, and we have been called to partner together to get the job done. And I, I want you to listen carefully today because it explains so much, so much about what we do and the direction that we want to go as a church. And this is especially important for those of us who take seriously the big Jesus assignment to become fishers of men. We're scared to death and we chicken out nearly every time. And so today, I want to talk about your teammates because if you don't leverage your teammates, you make it unnecessarily difficult. You make it unnecessarily difficult and hard on yourself. Now we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Now most of you know, but maybe you don't. Matthew was a tax collector, so he wasn't even worthy to be a religious person, yet God used him to actually write one of the books of the New Testament. So if there's hope for Matthew, there is hope for you, okay, no matter what you've done. So jumping in, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is asking, what are people saying about me? Now, he could ask that question because everybody then, as they do now, had an opinion about Jesus. Jesus was not a neutral subject. Either you loved him or you hated him, you found him to be irresistible, or you found him to be irritating. That's how it was then. That's essentially how it is now. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Now, John had died just a few months before, so major overlap in reincarnation. Others say Elijah, so these folks clearly believe in reincarnation. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet that had died hundreds of years before, and somehow now he's back. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the word on the street, Jesus, is they think that you are one of these reincarnated, one of these other guys. They're not completely sure, but they do know, they do believe that you are from God. And Jesus asked the question, and if you're someone, He's trying to figure out the whole spirituality thing, and why do good things happen to bad, or bad things happen to good people, and what about famine, and was the Bible written by man, and you've got all these questions that are good questions, but of all the questions, this is the question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? You've seen me. You've heard me. It's just us. Who do you think I am? And if you're, in, if you're someone who's in the process of seeking answers about God and Jesus, that is the question. 
And it's the question that you have to answer for yourself. And the question is, who is Jesus? And suddenly Peter, and this is so uncommon for him, Peter gets the answer right, okay? And this is huge. And this was a moment in which I imagined that all of heaven may have fallen silent. Anxiously anticipating, how will these men reply to this question? And it's just a moment, like, for any of, of you that like superhero shows, I'm like the big one, I've even started to, to win my wife over to the dark side. And you all know that uh, in some of these superhero shows, the superhero has a secret identity. All the people closest to them don't, don't know who they are, but finally there's that moment where the truth is about to be revealed and they're about to find out. There's this big anticipation of they're going to finally find out and what's it going to be like and how will they respond. And this is one of those moments, but in reality, these guys, they're gathered there. They have no idea the significance of this moment. And they certainly didn't know that thousands of years later on the other side of the world that we would be talking about this moment. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Three feet away from me, dressed much like I am, same beard, same haircut, I have watched, I have listened, listened, and I have come to the conclusion that you are not a reincarnated prophet or whatever, someone back from the dead. You aren't simply someone sent by God, you are the one. You are the one for a couple thousands of years we have been waiting for. We were beginning to lose hope. You are the unique one and only Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's who I think you are. And then all eyes turned from Peter and settled on Jesus. Imagine this moment. Imagine that you're Peter. You are looking directly into the eyes of the man that you're convinced, that you're convinced is the ancient, transcendent of space and time, one and only, in the flesh, Son of God. And you're looking right in the eye. And then Jesus breaks the silence. And he says, blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, well done, Peter. You got the right answer. God gave it to you. My Father gave it to you. And I tell you that you are Peter. And Simon goes, that's, that's not my name. That's not even a name. That's not my name. He goes, I'm changing your name. Now, when you change an adult's name, that's a big deal. And Jesus announced to these guys that from now on, Simon is now Peter. Now, something fascinating is that in Greek literature, there is no reference to anyone named Peter before this moment. Jesus took a word that meant uh, stone or rock, like a stone or a rock that you could hold in your hand and or used to sharpen a knife. He says, from now on, we are going to call you rock. So Dwayne Johnson, not the original. Okay, it started with Jesus and Simon. Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, you are rock. And then he uses a different form of the same noun. And he says, and on this rock, and now he uses a term for rock that is used to describe this giant monolithic mountainside side rock. And on this giant immovable stone, I will, future tense, build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. And I think heaven fell silent 
because this marked the first moment in recorded history in which mankind recognized Jesus for who he was, the Messiah, the one and only Son of God. And on this giant, movable, monolithic, simple truth, Jesus said, I am going to end the future, build by, and he uses the term in the Greek, ekklesia. In your Bible, it's translated church. Now, we hear the word church immediately think of a building where a group gathers together, but as we talk about it in life from day one, that the church is not a building. That the little Greek word ekklesia was a poorly translated word based on the German word kirch. And it translated, it was translated that way. The reason why is it had everything to do with the political, the religious landscape of the 1500s and keeping power and control of the ecclesia centralized. And there was incredible political pressure and corruption connected to this. Just study a bit of church history. But the term Jesus used was not even a religious term. It was not a building or a location. The word Jesus used in Greek literature was used to describe the voting community, the voting citizens of a community, an assembly, a body of people who were connected uh, by, by this common thing that brought them together. And so they called this the ecclesia, the assembly. There is no religious connotation to it. So what Jesus is saying is huge. He's saying, okay, we're going to mark this moment. From this moment, this guy over here, he is now stone. And on this statement, the stone just made, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am going to launch a movement, a brand new group, a brand new body of people, a congregation, a new citizenship. And the common denominator, the common denominator for all that join the movement will not be their nationality or their race or the language they speak or how much money they do or don't have. The common ground is going to be what Stone over here just said that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overcome it. That means that no matter what is thrown at it, no matter what tries to get in the way, it will build and build and build and grow and grow and grow, and it will move and it will move forward, and nothing will ever be able to stop it. Now, let's just imagine. You're in first century, mid-east, part of the world, you're part of a captive vassal state, sitting there with a carpenter, born in poverty, and there's just 12 of you. It's like, really, Jesus? Like, there's 12 of us? Like, these are big world, big words. Do you know how big the world is? Like, you don't know how big the world is. It's like, listen, little did they know. Little did they know that they're in that dusty Middle Eastern community with that unknown son of a carpenter and that ragtag group of some fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot and this hodgepodge mix of random people and here we are 2,000 years later and over a third of the world's population about 2.4 billion people today believe that Jesus was the son of God different languages different cultures different traditions different ways of doing baptism and dressing and doing music and doing communion and approaching theology, different seminaries and schools, differences everywhere, but get us all in the same room with all these different denominations and ask, what, what do you guys have in common? And it is one thing, that we believe that Jesus Christ was the unique Son of the living God and the Messiah. That is the foundation. That is the focal point. That is the starting point of what Jesus predicted and called his ecclesia, the church that he promised that I'm going to build it, and in every generation that comes, I'm going to add more and more and more until every tribe, every 
tongue, every nation, has heard the message that ties it all together, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of the living God. And let's be real. Financial scandal, all kinds of immorality, child abuse, bad theology and doctrine, making up traditions that are nowhere found in the New Testament or teachings of Jesus, all kinds of bad leadership and inquisitions and crusades, misrepresentations of scripture, all kinds of factions and divisions and racism. I mean, the church has been fraught with every kind of embarrassing problem imaginable. And yet, it keeps growing. It's been persecuted. Nations have tried to stamp it out. Communism tried to educate it out of people. Every kind of opposition imaginable. And yet, 2,000 years later, exactly what Jesus predicted, it keeps moving forward. And there's always been a core, a remnant of men and women and young people who have embraced the call to simply follow Jesus, to trust him with their lives and their eternity, to allow him to shape them into people who would love one another, who would love their neighbor, no matter how different they are, or they look or think, love their neighbor as Jesus loved us unconditionally and sacrificially, and to allow Jesus to make them into fishers of men and women. And here's what I, what I want to make so clear. The church is and has always supposed to be a partner in the fishing process. And I don't understand why so many church leaders and Christians for generations have missed this. I don't get it. As I was growing up, and some of you can relate to this, when I think of my grandparents' church or some of the churches I visited when I was a teenager, the last thing you would want to do is invite someone to that church that wasn't a Christian. Well, many of them would say, we want you to invite people, but what they really meant is invite other people who are like us, who look like us, and think like us, and believe like us, and all the words, the songs we sing, they've got all the right beliefs and behaviors, who can at least appear to be faithful men and women of God, know how to dress, and wear the dress, and wear a tie. I remember my first time, first full-time ministry in Florida, it was Florida, and when I first went down there, they had said, like, hey, we really want to reach people. The average age of the church was about 104. We're like, we're getting older, and we want to reach young families and all this. And uh, like, we were all excited. They want to reach people. But what we quickly discovered was that their words within their willingness to do what needed to be done was not lined up. In fact, the church was not a partner. It actually worked against the fishing process. For example, and imagine because we got a lot of introverts here, which I know this terrified you right here. Oh, I got to sit at a table with people and interact, so sorry for that terror moment. But one of the things that they were unwilling to change was the practice of making first-time visitors right at, you know, there would be the songs and before the service started, having a first-time visitor stand and introduce themselves to everybody. Imagine that. We should start that if you like. Uh, <laughs> it would be back all online at that point. Uh, and imagine, how many of you would have invited a friend in that case? Okay, some of you have some extrovert friends, and that might work. But Or there was this time we had a couple moved to the area from the upper northeast, and they were began, They decided they wanted to explore faith, explore church. They started coming to our church. They visited one of our classes, and uh, one of the things in the conversation came up about heaven and hell, and the husband shared that he wasn't sure if he believed in hell. And then the elder that I had asked to leave the class, like in that moment, rather than like, oh, you know, I, I couldn't understand that, or, you know, that's a good conversation, it was, it was like, what the, what do you mean you don't believe in hell? Like, like, how can you even think that? And just belittled the man right in front of everyone. So you can imagine how long they stuck around. 
And it just got to the point that as I met new people in the community, it's like, I care too much about you to invite you to my church. And it became a defining moment for me as a leader because I knew, I knew in the core of my soul that the church should be a partner to create God, a God-honoring environment where unchurched, unbelieving men and women and teens and kids can come. And even though they don't believe what we believe, they will come back the next week to hear more. That the church should be a place where people can belong before they believe. And here's what I've discovered in my 27 years of ministry. If you can get unchurched, unbelieving people in a community of believers who are loving and caring for each other while being authentic, being in that community breaks down barriers to unbelief. Get someone into a community where a church is being the church and somehow the edges get softer, Hearts open up, and life change happens. And the stunning irony is, you know, where I and other leaders who understand this concept have gotten all the resistance from over the years? Church people. In fact, some of you are aware before building the team to start new life back in 2016, I was an associate pastor of a large church. One of my main focus areas was young, young adults, and we had a fantastic growth and momentum with a string of baptisms and young adults stepping into active ministry, but then in a surprising move, the board of that particular church suddenly went around the senior pastor and asked me to leave. And during my exit interviews, I asked why I was being let go, especially since three months before I had been promoted. And the exact words were, the board has decided that you have a vision for the church that is different than the board's. You, and I quote, are too outreach minded. And then they proceeded over the next several months to run off, run off nine other pastors and ministry leaders, including the senior pastor, who were of a similar mindset. You're too outreach-minded. See, some years ago, I made up my mind that I am going to spend the rest of my life finding people who understand that God is thrilled when we go out of our way to create environments in the local church that when we gather as a group, it focuses on Him, but in such a way that it allows us to partner with people who have accepted their big assignment and are fishing among friends and among family. And we want to create an engaging environment for the people who come. And as they get involved in the community of believers, that their belief system begins to grow and positively change, because we're not because we confront them, or because we were able to answer all of their questions, which are good questions, and there is a time and a place for that. But because they are as much as they ever, will ever be on this side of heaven, in the presence of their living Savior. Which is what happens when the body of Christ is functioning like the body should. That's as good as it gets until Jesus comes back. In fact, Jesus says in another place in Matthew, Truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree on anything and ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now this was a promise specific to these disciples. Then he gives a general promise. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Don't miss this. Jesus says that when two or three people come together on official Jesus business, we're not just getting together to sing some songs and drink some coffee or drop some money into a box. Jesus says, no. When that happens, I will be with you. You can count on me individually, but if you want to experience my presence, 
to get as close to me as you will ever, this side of heaven, then you get together with two or three or more other believers because of me to do my business, and I will show up in a remarkable, unmistakable way. That means when the church is organized and strategized around official Jesus' work and business and loving and caring for one another and pursuing and celebrating relationship with one another and Him, His presence shows up in their midst. Then the most powerful thing that we can do for our unbelieving, unchurched friends and family is simply to invite them, come and see, come and see, you just got to come and see. I mean, this was Jesus' whole strategy from the very beginning. He just kept going around, hey, come, come follow me, you'll see You've got questions? Follow me. One day, Andrew says, Simon, I just, you've got to meet this guy. Simon Peter, he's got all of these objections. Andrew just says, no, just, just come and see. Philip wants Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Philip says, dude, you just got to meet him. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth, what good can Just come. Philip's like, bro, just come see the man. Just meet him. If I can just get you in his presence, you'll understand. And that is supposed to be the strategy of the local church. That when the local church is truly being the church, it is the most powerful environment on the planet. And our responsibility is to involve people as much as we can, as quickly as we can, within the community of believers, because that's where resistance begins to break down and life transformation begins to happen. So to make it as simple as possible, as I wrap up, here's your application. Two parts. Here's your two parts outside of these walls or outside your screen. It's to invest in the life of a friend who's unchurched or who doesn't believe. To invest in their life. And then when the time is right, invite them. Invite them to an environment that has been designed for them to show up in because inviting them. It's a big part of our big assignment to be fishers of men and women because I can tell you this with certainty. I have never seen an empty chair place its faith in Christ. See, every empty chair that's here is for someone you know. A friend, a family member, a co-worker. Inviting is part of the fishing process so the people of your life can be exposed to the presence of Christ. Maybe it's at the Galentine's event that we have coming up, or Iron and Ale that we've got coming up again for men. Every time we gather, if it's involving Jesus, it's as good as it gets until Jesus returns. And many of you, you have partnered, you have partnered with us. Some of you from the very beginning, too give and to serve and do your part so that when people drive into this massive parking lot, they go, wow, they thought of me. And when they walk into this labyrinth of halls, it's like, wow. And they have kids and they put their kids in kids' life and then they pick them up afterwards and their kids are like, wow, that was great. I want to come back next week. And Sunday, as I talk to some of our kids in kids' life, working with our amazing volunteers, like Sunday's become the best day of their week. And the adult guests that come, they're like, wow, the music was good, the sound was good, all the words were spelled correctly, the light, the environment, I mean, what they've done with this kind of like really sterile building. Like I felt so welcome, it engaged me, the speaker ended on time. I'm not convinced that I believe all that everyone here believes yet, but I want, 
want to hear more. I want to experience more. In other words, we don't just babysit. We don't just take care of kids. We don't just have coffee and faders and lights and slides. No. We partner together. We partner together to put in the thought and the time and the work to the best of our ability with God's help to create environments that draw people's hearts to their Heavenly Father to His Son, Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time. That's what the local church was always supposed to do. And for some of you, when you look back, you imagine how much better your life had been had you been able to grow up in that kind of environment, or maybe even your parents. See, I don't believe it's any accident. For those of you that are connected to New Life, whether new or a long time, consider this your church home. I don't believe it's any accident that you are connected to New Life. I believe that God orchestrated all the details that led you to this community such a time as this. And that's why we need each and every one of you who consider new life, your church home, to give generously, to figure out that spot that's a fit for you, to connect however God has gifted you to help us continue to grow and work and improve what we do to get better in creating our environments that the unchurched and the de-churched friends and families of yours and those around you and their kids want to attend and engage, not just want to return, but they want to invite others with them to come and see. It's why we need even more gifted people to help with creative stage design, with audio-visual tech. We need more gifted vocalists and musicians, as well as small group hosts and leaders to create smaller environments for the week for people to connect and grow, because I have seen it again and again and again, that when we go the extra mile and do church in such a way that the guest and the explorer, the skeptic, the seeker are welcomed and engaged and made to feel made to feel valued and not condemned. God will show up in those environments. Because Jesus promised when you and I take his assignment that he's given us seriously to glorify the Father by becoming fisher of men, that he will be in the midst of us. So here's my question. And the first question is. Are you investing and inviting? Are you investing in your relationships with people who aren't in faith? If all of your friends and family are Christians, you need more friends. Are you asking yourself also, what is the right environment to bring them into? Maybe it's Sunday morning. Maybe it's the gallery conference. Maybe it's the Iron and Ale or these other events. Maybe it's to your small group. And the second question is, are you serving strategically? Where are you partnering with me and with those around you to reach the people that the rest of us are invested in? That one day they're going to come and they're going to sit in one of these chairs in the future. And we have first-time guests almost every weekend. And something in their life has prompted them to search for God or search for a church. They found us through a Google search or they saw us on social media or they just somehow discovered. I mean, we had somebody a long time ago. They just saw the flags and they came in. And then like three months later, we baptized them. It's just crazy. And where are you plugged in to make a difference? To make sure we're hitting on all cylinders when someone walks in the building or joins one of our other experiences. So that when we're doing that, then the Spirit can really show up because we're being a part of what He's trying to accomplish in the life of someone else. We're showing up with a servant, serving towel over our heart. Serving in different areas because we mean business and we're on task and we're on target. Are you investing and inviting and are you serving strategically? But if not, 
why not? Now, what clarification? For some of you, you know this, because I've had conversations with people over the years who come to New Life, they get connected, and they're coming in with a limp. They've experienced some serious church hurt, or there's some significant pain in their life, or there's been loss, or grief, or something bad has happened in their life, and they're just stepping in with some open wounds, and they just need a community to pour into them. And I regularly tell these folks, which has been some of you in the past, hey, you know, for now, don't strategically serve anywhere. Don't volunteer for anything. You just come. And just let us love. And just let us pour into you. Take a few weeks. Take a few months. Take the time that you need to heal and refresh. And then when you're ready, just take one small step to serve and getting connected. Because my heart's desire is to spend the rest of my life working with those of you who even as you're working to figure out your faith, that you're dedicated to creating irresistible environments, not for the sake of more people, but for the sake of being a part of what our Savior is going to do with or without us. Who would want to miss out on being a part of it? Jesus said, I am going to build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not stop me. And the focal point in the common denominator is that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he's given us the opportunity and the thrill to partner with him, what he would do in this ever-increasing, broken, and divided world. But if you stay on the outside, then you miss out. But for those of you who will choose to say, God, I'm with you, I'm in, I will invest and invite and fish for the men and women as you give me the opportunity, I'm going to be present and engage and give and serve. The good news is that you are not alone. We as a church are partners with you, with those of you who choose to partner with our Savior, Jesus. And next week, don't miss as we dig into the fear factor and that final piece that holds us back. Let me pray for this. Father, again, I celebrate this day. I celebrate the fact that you not only have been building this church, but you built this through COVID, through shutdowns, through everything that's happened over the last year, the last two years. And Father, just the lives that we've seen change, the people who've stepped into faith, the relationships that have been altered, God, it's, it's just amazing what you've done in this small community. And Father, I pray that you would give us the courage and what is needed to step into, take whatever that next step is, to be a part of what you would do in the lives of this city, in the lives of people we're connected to. But Father, above all that, there's so what we can do is limited, and what you can do is unlimited. And we just pray that you would show up in unmistakable ways in what you do in and through our community and in and through us. In the name of Jesus, that 